Amen. Haven't you enjoyed having Orpheus with us this morning? I want to remind you that uh, it's our privilege, a portion out of every dollar that is given here at Grace Point uh, goes to support uh, our school. We have many schools uh, in our denomination around the globe, but Olivet is our regional school. And uh, Carrie and I have been blessed by the impact of Olivet. I know many of you have and your children have. And I want to urge you to continue to keep praying for Olivet and uh, supporting Olivet in every way you can. And it's a great uh, privilege to have Orpheus with us and we can see what God is doing in the lives of more and more generations that are being touched by all of that. I want you to uh, celebrate with me today as we come to this candle. As you're uh, aware, maybe you're not, if you're new to Grace Point, every time we come to this candle uh, and we light this candle, it's symbolizing the light of Jesus coming out in someone's life for the first time. Now there's nothing magical or uh, no goofy gopher dust or anything in this candle. It's just a candle. And it's just a flame, but it symbolizes something that is very tangible, very real, and a life that's transformed by Jesus. And this week, I got an email from one of you sharing with me that uh, one of your friends came to know Jesus uh, for the very first time. And let's celebrate that together. Amen. 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 I challenge you, be looking for the person in your circle of influence, that you may be the only Jesus that they're going to see, and uh, that's something you've heard before, we've talked about that, but think of the reality, that if you don't give a reason for the hope that you have in Jesus, there may be somebody close to you uh, that does not receive Christ, and we want to do everything we can. Uh, I thought about preaching a message on procrastination today. But I decided to do that later, not now. I don't know if you like putting stuff off or not. I remember uh, having Orpheus here today has reminded me again of my freshman year in college. I came home uh, for that first summer uh, aware that I was now a full-grown adult and all the freedom that goes along with it to find that uh, on the first week of that summer vacation, my mother had decided to schedule a dentist appointment for me. And uh, inside, I flexed my muscles real strong and say, well, you can schedule whatever you want to. I'm not going. But I didn't say that because I needed a place to live for the rest of the summer. So I thought it'd be wise not to, to say things like that. So I went to this dentist appointment and uh, the dentist informed me. He said, Brady, you've got a problem in your mouth. Uh, there is some wisdom teeth on that bottom row that have to come out. But I need you to sign this waiver because as we look at it, somehow you're, the root of your tooth and the nerves have intertwined together. And by me taking that out, I could, could do something inadvertently and you would lose feeling in the bottom of your mouth and it could affect your speech. And I'm thinking, I'm not signing that. I'm not doing that at all. I've just been following God's call in my life to full-time ministry. And I thought, i got to talk for a living. This would not be good to not like have your mouth work, so I'm not doing this. I said, you can clean whatever you want to, but you're not cutting anything out. And uh, ten years later, I was in Grove City, Ohio, in my basement with a mouth that was just ravished with pain. I had an impacted tooth, and I had not dealt with the issue that was brought to me. I procrastinated. I pushed it off. I didn't want to deal with it. It didn't change the fact that the decay was still there. And now it's impacted and it's worse. And so I did what I thought anybody should do. I went to the garage and found a razor blade 
and uh, dipped it in some Listerine, because that's really sanitary. And I wouldn't advise doing what I'm about to tell you, but, but I did. And uh, when my wife was already asleep at night in the basement, I lanced my own tooth. This is not a good idea for so many reasons. Later, I found out by my doctor that this was really stupid because now I just took the poison that was all concentrated there and sent it all throughout my mouth and who knows wherever else throughout my body. I knew I had a problem, but I didn't want to deal with it and I pushed it off. And if I would have dealt with it at that point, I would have not only had the the issue removed, but I wouldn't have had to have all that pain and that fret from here on out. Now, eventually I did get it taken care of. But I waited so long, I procrastinated so much, I tried to deal with it with my own resolve that I missed so much of the benefits of getting it taken care of right away. I want to share with you a message this morning that admittedly is not always fun to talk about. The politically correct people would say, well, well, don't talk about this, you may offend somebody. I'm just kind of wired weird, and I think, well, maybe I want to talk about that now if you say that. You see, because my friendship with you, my love for you, is deeper than just telling you what you want to know. I believe that we need to hear some things that may not make us feel comfortable, but is exactly what we need. So this morning and this week, I want you to think about an answer to this simple question. Where will you spend eternity? Where will you spend forever? Say, well, pastor, I'm, I'm just trying to get through this week. I can't think about my future, let alone eternity. I mean, I'm just trying to deal with what's up against me right here and now. And, and I understand that. I think 99% of our thoughts and energy is spent on the urgent, the immediate, and, and sometimes that's okay. And many of the messages that you hear me bring from God's Word deal with how we can have victory right here, right now, and how to get through everyday life. And that's a big part of who we are as a people, and who God is in His message to us. But if I'm fair to you and fair to God's Word, I must remind us to think about heaven and about hell. The Bible often speaks about the next life, and rightly so, because the more prepared we are here for the next life, the better off we will be. After all, a large portion of our existence is not going to be here on earth. It's for all of eternity. You've heard me share before that my philosophy of life is really simple. This life is really short. The next life is really long. So I'm going to do things in this life that make a difference in that life. That's starting to hurt my legs a little bit. It's like exercise there. But so it's, it's so important that I remember what is happening here and now affects all of eternity. And I'm going to make the decisions here and now that I will be thankful for for the rest of eternity. The Bible consistently affirms the certainty of eternity. Now, if you like to take notes, pull out your notes, and we're going to look at this key thought. If you don't like to take notes, you know the rule. Hit the person next to you say, I'm too cool to take notes. Take them for me. That's your job. Jesus often himself addressed the issue during his brief three years of ministry on this earth, the issue of eternity. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 13 as we look at verse 47 through 51. Here Jesus likens the gateway into the kingdom of heaven to a net gathering fish. As we read this parable together, I want to take some notes and look at some of the facts surrounding this certainty of eternity that Jesus is giving us through this parable. Verse 47. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net 
that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. Now circle the word, the word, the phrase, all kinds of fish there, either in your outline or in your Bible. The point here is that everyone will be brought to judgment. Every kind of fish will be gathered up. This is a picture of, of this dragnet that's just going, not discriminating against any, and, and gathering every fish that it can. It's not a hook and a line, just picking and choosing certain ones. As a dragnet catches all kinds of fish, so every person will be brought before a holy God on the judgment day. That includes me, that includes you, that includes every person you've locked eyes with. They will be held accountable before God on judgment day. Second fact that we can see is that there will be a separation process. Look at verse 48 through 50. Jesus goes on to teach. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw away the bad fish. Then Jesus proceeds to interpret his parable right there to them. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Aren't you encouraged this morning? You're dismissed. (laughs) Pastor, what what are you talking about? I'm here to to get pumped up. I mean, this is grace point, and where's the grace in this? And this is starting to sound like a a, a fiery hell and fire and brimstone kind of thing. And if you start screaming, I'm walking out. What parts of the Bible do we want to just get rid of because they don't make us feel comfortable? I believe that Jesus not only wants to give us the the hard truth, I think there is a message of encouragement if we look closely at it. Every single person will come to judgment. There will be a separation process. Like the fish in his parable, Jesus says that people will be sorted out. Every person will end up in one of two places, either in heaven or in hell. The saved will be assigned their place in eternity and separation from God. And those who have, in faith in Jesus Christ, obeyed Him and allowed Him to be Lord, they will spend eternity in heaven with Him. I want you to imagine how beautiful heaven will be. It's it's beyond any description that we can come up with. And next week we're going to spend our entire time looking at the gift and the promise of heaven and how we can find ourselves there. But before we do that, we need to recognize that there is a separation and those who are not saved will be assigned to their eternity in hell. The unbelieving, the self-absorbed, the self-deceived will be condemned for their offenses against God. When Jesus finished this little parable, he asks, and in the inference here is that he's speaking to the disciples. He'd been talking to the whole crowd, but now he's asking a small group of people, most likely it's the disciples who are right there with him. Have you understood all these things, Jesus asked? Yes, they replied. See, he was teaching to the crowd, and now he says, this is something for my followers to answer. Some of you have already checked out. You say, well, I'm a Christian. I've been going to church for a long time and, and, and I've taught about heaven. I've taught about hell and I know all this stuff and, and I've prayed a prayer decades ago and I've gone to church ever since then. What do I need to know about this? See, Jesus is telling us this is a message for the church, not just the world. Well, why in the world would Jesus want us as the church to, to hear about eternity and hell and separation from God? I think there's a couple reasons. 
One is, it's so easy for us to take eternity lightly. Some of us who have been given the gift of eternal life with Christ begin to live in that grace so long, we begin to think we deserve it. We begin to think that somehow we have earned it. We begin to think that somehow, I mean, there's a portion that we couldn't do, but we're just kind of helping God out by being a representative. I mean, really, God, you're lucky you got me on your team. Because think of all the people that are going to be impacted by, by me. Friend, Jesus wants us to know that if you got what you deserve, if I got what I deserve, I would be separated from him for all of eternity in a fiery hell. God wants us to remember that his grace is so sufficient, but it is so costly, and it costs his very best. Remember our last series, when we put God first, it impacts the rest. God started this ball rolling by giving us his first first. He's the one who said, I'm going to come to you before you ever come to me. And we should never, ever forget, church, what it is that hangs in the balance for eternity. It's a message for us, not just the world. The truth is that hell is a real place. It's a horrible place, and we need to take a minute to look at the certainty of hell. Jesus talks more about hell than he does about heaven. I think the reason that he did this is because he knows that we would constantly try to block the reality of hell out of our mind. He knew that we wouldn't want to focus on that which we deserve. Now, I don't want you to just take my word for it. You read his words, see what Jesus has to say, and let this be a starting point today, not the end of our study of what weighs in the balance in eternity. There is a literal hell, Scripture tells us. It exists, and it's the ultimate end to all sin. All living with unconfessed sin, they are heading straight for a fiery hell. Since the Bible is clear about the certainty of hell, it would be simple for us to say, well, what is hell like? Some people make out hell to be this great party scene. I remember being in a parking lot one time and I saw this guy peel out in his pickup truck and he stuck his head out to yell at his friends who were left behind. He said, see you in hell. And everybody kind of laughed. I didn't know him and I don't know the scenario and this may not be true of his thought process, but it sure sounded like it from his words. He didn't appear to have too much worry about hell. To him, it appeared that hell was going to be a great place. Maybe he thought there's no rules, there's no Bible, there's no God, there's no restraints. It's a place where my friends are going to be, and so that's where I want to party for all of eternity. That may be what some hope hell is like, but the Bible, our authority, the truth, tells a very different picture. It gives us a frightening picture of what hell will be like. Friend, I have news. If you think hell is going to be somehow preferential... Because you know somebody that you think will be there, you're going to be mistaken and you're going to really wish that you had had a different, a true perspective. Turn with me to uh, Luke 16 as we look at verse 19 through 31. Here we get another picture of hell. And, and I want to remind you, this is not an attempt to give you an idea that God is up in heaven as a cosmic killjoy, ready to take a lightning bolt and zap you every moment that you misstep. This is a reality, the facts, the truth about His love and grace, and we can't understand it until we know what He has saved us from. There is a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. Luke 16, verse 20. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. 
The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Besides all this, Between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so they will not also come to to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone raises from the dead. Well, what can we take from this passage? How can we get a perspective on hell that can impact us not only now but for eternity? First, notice that hell is a place of emotional torment. Verse 23 tells us what the rich man is saying. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. Now circle the word torment. Earlier, when we looked at Jesus' parable of the net in Matthew 13, Jesus used a common phrase when talking about hell. He said it's a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't know that I've ever really thought a lot about weeping and gnashing of teeth. As I began to think through that this week and that phrase, and do we ever come in contact with weeping and gnashing of teeth? I I don't know that I would imagine that we would ever hear the cry of someone from separation from God and the weeping and gnashing of teeth, but there are moments where we have deep, deep regret and weep and kind of a grinding and a growl in our voice. Maybe for you, you were in your car and you just look down to check a text for just a moment and in a split second, wham, you had a collision, the airbag goes off and the dust settles and you look and you have now realized out of the corner of your vision where you were not looking, there was a vehicle coming that had the right of way and you went right into them. As you realize it's your fault, you may grit your teeth and groan, I can't believe it, I just looked down for a second. If I could just rewind for a minute, none of this would have happened. There may be some sorrow and some desire to do it over again, and there's this moment of grief. Maybe, students, there's a a test that you've been studying for for many months, and and you say, you know what, I've worked hard, and you get the results back from this test or something you've been working towards, and you find yourself looking at the results, and you didn't score the way you wanted to, or you didn't make the position that you hoped to, and you go, oh my goodness, I cannot believe I got that wrong. I cannot believe I did not perform or follow through the way I had practiced to do so. I I just can't believe it. Maybe you wake up after an argument that you had the night before. You wake up that next morning and you think about the things that came out of your mouth that you spewed on that loved one. 
You may grit your teeth and go, I cannot believe I would have said that or done that. And as frustrating or painful or as agonizing as that may be, we are always comforted with the thought that, well, I I won't do that next time. I'll not text and drive again. I'll I'll study harder. I'll be more prepared or I'll watch what I'll say. I, I always will have next time. But friend, in hell, there is no next time. The emotional torment of the Weeping and gnashing of teeth is the constant grinding of rehearsing every time that you had rejected the grace of God by your own free will. And, and, and there is no comfort to say, well, well, I'll get it right again. It never stops. No anticipation of getting it right. Nothing but the prospect of eternal torment and knowing that you have missed it with no reprieve in sight. Second look, that hell is a place of physical agony. Look at verse 24. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Circle that word agony. The Bible often likens hell to a fire that is never quenched. There's probably nothing more physically painful than a deep flesh burn. And hell is described as a place where there's relentless, tormenting, burning, suffocating heat that never stops. Notice the rich man doesn't ask for a bucket or a bowl or even a glass to drink, but just a drop of water on his tongue would be the comfort that he would have beyond any comprehension. The Bible tells us that this kind of excruciating pain will go on forever. Now, medical experts tell us today that if your body is facing certain thresholds of pain, you will pass into unconsciousness as a way to cope with the pain that is upon you. There is no defense mechanism like this available in hell. Many people have learned to discipline themselves to to grin and bear it and just manage the pain, but realizing that some point life will end and the pain will be over. Not so in separation from God. I want you to think back to a time in your life when you experienced the most physical pain you have ever had. Whether it be childbirth, whether it be a broken bone, arthritis, a disease. Most of you have had some kind of relief from when that pain started. But imagine that pain would go on forever and ever and ever, and it would never, ever wane. It would only intensify and intensify over all of eternity. Third, hell is a place of relational separation. Verse 26, and besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to get from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. I don't know where the idea started that, In hell, there would be relationships with people who were less than good, and they could just have their own carousing party. The thought, okay, it may be bad, but at least I'll be in good company with the people who I care about and who I think are making the same life choices. Hell will be filled with people who are so consumed with their own emotional and physical pain that there will be no energy, no interest in building friendships or fellowship. The biblical picture is of solitary suffering Forever, there'll be no one to share suffering with, no one to offer sympathy, and loneliness on this life will be a cakewalk compared to the isolation you will feel in separation from God, only to be interrupted by the terror that someone you love 
may remain on earth who is heading toward the same end as the one who is in hell. Finally, hell is also a place of spiritual hopelessness. Abraham responds to the rich man's request in verse 31. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. This by far, I think, is the worst part, sometimes the most difficult to grasp. Abraham is reminding this tormented rich man that God's grace is still reaching out to his brothers on earth. In this age, God in his mercy is offering forgiveness to us. It's not that you and I come to God and his grace that goes before, his provenient grace, he is running after you. He is chasing you down. He wants what's best for you. He says, come to the end of yourself. Let me free you from the grip of sin. He wants the best for you. And in this age, it's the age of his mercy, but not so in hell. There will be a moment of spiritual hopelessness. The tender wooing of the Holy Spirit who deals with our hearts will be taken from that place. His absence will unleash a reign of terror that will make 9-11 look like nothing. The Bible gives us these vivid and sometimes even vague pictures of utter darkness, absolute chaos, confusion, infinite ages of futility, mourning that never comes, eternity of hopelessness, and a bottomless pit of despair. You see, in hell there will never be the relief of annihilation. You'd give anything just to be wiped off the planet or the existence of the space that you take up But it's not possible, only the real awareness of emotional torment, physical agony, relational separation, and spiritual hopelessness forever and ever. Where is the hope in this, Brady? You said there's a message for us. For those of you who have put your trust in Jesus Christ, and you didn't just say a prayer way back when, and try to get to heaven, or try to live for God on your church attendance, or the things that you do, or the things that you don't do, For those of you who who have done that, and you just say, I'm going to try to get by my own strength, this is a wake-up call. Eternity is real. Hell is real. Heaven is real. There's a hell to avoid, a heaven to embrace, and it's only by the grace of Jesus. For those of you who have put your trust in Jesus, and you've not done those things, this is a time for us to come to grips with the grace that's given to us. You ever find yourself having trouble lifting your voice in praise and in worship? Remind yourself of what you deserve. Allow God to remind you of who you are before He has got a hold of you. God knows everything about you and He's head over heels in love with you. And that's why He gives the strong message, Let me save you from yourself. What an awful crime would someone have to commit to end up in hell? What would that take to be in this Terrible place of agony and pain and suffering. If you'll allow me to summarize hundreds of passages of Scripture into one sentence, I think the answer can be summed up as the crime would be rejecting the person in the work of Jesus Christ. To reject the Holy Spirit's overtures in your life, to disobey His commands, to walk away from His saving grace and love is to seal your eternal destiny in hell. Listen to what Hebrews 10, 26-29 says as I read from the New Living Translation. Dear friends, 
if we deliberately continue sinning after we have received a full knowledge of the truth, there is no other sacrifice that will cover these sins. There will be nothing to look forward to but the terrible expectation of God's judgment and the raging fire that will consume his enemies. Anyone who refused to obey the law of Moses was put to death without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Think how much more terrible the punishment will be for those who have trampled on the Son of God and have treated the blood of the covenant as if it were common and unholy. How do we trample on the Son of God? How do we treat things that are holy as unholy? How do we insult and grieve the Holy Spirit? Every time you and I willfully, consciously disobey, say, God, this is what you want, but I take my will and put it above your will, we do just that. Willful disobedience is sin, and it is serious. James 4.17 tells us that anyone who knows the good that he or she ought to do, and they don't do it, sins. Sin separates us from God. We are to be in separation from God. We must be in the place of eternal punishment. Sin is simply shaking my puny little fist in the face of a holy God. When we've done that, we have said no to His grace. The fact is, everybody in this room, every person who's walked this earth except Jesus, have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. So as we've been cruising through life and our rebellion, our self-centered hearts, one day many of us ran smack dab into the cross of Jesus. It might be through another Christian friend or a Bible study or a church service or a pastor or a missionary. But we hear that there is a solution for this separation from God. This sin debt, the payment, had been paid. Forgiveness has been offered, and the only thing left is for us to receive it and to give our life to Jesus. Let me be clear. This is not about saying a, a phrase or two in a hocus-pocus sentence that somehow you get a get-out-of-jail-free card and, and you've got your ticket punched to heaven. And this is about trusting Jesus with your life. Resting on Him, believing on Him, and allowing Him to bring a transformation into your life. There should be a change. There should be the fruit of the Spirit in our life. When this takes place, we begin to see what we have been forgiven of. That way is made available to every person who seeks His forgiveness. When you run smack into the middle of the cross, it is decision time. Some fall to their knees right there and they confess. Confess means to say the same thing. When I confess my sin, I don't make excuses about it. I don't lobby to God. Well, God, if you knew what my parents were like, if you knew what my work situation was like, if you knew the pressures I had on me, I deserved that release. I deserved that little bit of, of leeway. I deserved to be able to do what it was I wanted to do. No, confession is to say, God, I'm going to say about that action, about that thought, the same thing that you say. It is wrong. It is sin. And it separates me from you. Not only do we confess, we are to repent. And this is not just saying, God, I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry I'm in this jam. I can't believe this mess. It's saying, God, with your help, I want to live the opposite way. I want to live for you. I want to go the other direction. There is freedom from the chains of sin. We don't have to live stuck and willful disobedience the rest of our existence. Some 
fall and repent and confess right there. But many continue to shake their defiant fists in God's face and take a big sidestep around the cross. They rejoin the masses of self-deceived, walk right to the edge of the cliff and over the cliff into a Christless eternity into hell, just like Jesus has described for us here today. Now, can you believe that some people actually blame God or accuse God of arbitrarily casting people into hell? Now, I understand how those outside of the body of believers, outside of the church, may not understand the Bible and may not have been exposed to it, and they could, could have this misconstrued idea. But for us in the church to sometimes struggle with, well, well, why would a loving God do this to me? It baffles me. Friend, hear me clearly. God doesn't send anyone to hell. He doesn't send anyone to hell. Listen to 2 Peter 3, 9. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. No, to, to end up in hell, you have to walk off the edge of your own free will. To end up in hell, you have to stumble, sidestep over the cross of Jesus. Some of you have stumbled over the cross so many times that you have forgotten that it's there. You've begun to ignore it now. And every time you make that conscious decision, I'm not going to deal with this now. I'm going to put it off. I'm going to procrastinate. I've heard the report, but I'm going to take care of it myself. Not only will you make the infection worse, you will send this through your entire body and your being, and you will begin to be more deceived upon more deception upon more deception. It is far better to allow God to bring you to your senses to say, God, I don't want to play games any longer. Friend, if you're playing the Christian game, it is so much harder than letting Jesus set you free. If you're bound up in this legalistic idea that I've got to somehow do enough and be enough and get enough so God will accept me, friend, the bad news is you're never enough. The good news is He didn't ask you to be enough. He said... Would you call your disobedience what I call it sin? Would you confess and repent and allow me to bring freedom to your life? You see, when I choose or when you choose to live separate from God in this life, you and I are choosing to live separate from God for all of eternity. I want to invite you, if you would stand with me right now. In our final few moments... I'd like for you to bow your head and close your eyes. If that freaks you out, just stare at your shoes. I'm not trying to, like, do anything weird here. There's no snakes or, like, Kool-Aid coming out. I just want you to be able to focus on God and allow Him to direct your thoughts. If you're here this morning and you say, Brady, you know, I am confident That there is nothing blocking my relationship with God. There's no willful disobedience that's unconfessed. I am am 100% confident that if I would die tonight, I would go to heaven by God's grace. Not what I deserve, but I'm confident that I am in right relationship with God. If that's you, I just want you to raise your hand real high and keep it up as a testimony to the Lord. No one else is looking. You just keep it up. Those of you who have your hands raised over the next number of minutes, I want you to allow your heart to celebrate the peace in your soul that God has given to you, not because you deserve it, no, 
but because He loves you so much. Eternity is real. Hell is real. Heaven is real. And your God has made a way that you can have a relationship with Him. You need to celebrate that today. You can put your hands down. If you're here this morning and and you did not raise your hand, or you raised your hand with doubt, and you say, you know, I'm not confident that I have the assurance of salvation in my life. And just a minute, Pastor Edgar is going to lead us in a song, and I want to ask you to do a tough thing. Whenever Jesus was calling out a disciple, someone who would follow him, he had them put feet to their faith. He'd say, come here. He called for an action to take place. In a minute, I'm going to invite you to step out of your seat and to come and kneel here at these altars and pray. There's nothing magical about these altars. We can pray anywhere, but I believe when we put feet to our faith and step forward, God will honor that, and it will be important for you in days to come. Say, well, well, Brady, what will people think of me if if I come forward and pray on a day like today with a message like that? And, And that was kind of intense. They'll probably think you're making the best decision of your life. Friends, I'm not here to manipulate you or to talk you into or out of anything. I just care about you enough to share the truth and allow God to give you the grace that He has given to me. As we sing this song, if you are tired of procrastinating, if you have unconfessed sin in your life, this is your day for your loving God to wrap His arms around you as you confess and repent. Come now and kneel. Don't wait for anybody else. As Pastor Edgar sings, you come and kneel and we'll pray together.